With food prices skyrocketing and lengthy supply chains becoming much less secure, Perspective looks at new food production systems which could provide at least some of the answers. Regenerative agriculture combines centuries-old farming practice with modern science to allow farmers to produce food more sustainably and enhance the island's biodiversity. We also look at the award for farmers who actively support biodiversity on their land. Finlow Castain used to work for the Manx National Farmers Union and helped deliver the Thanks for Choosing Manx campaign. So what's he doing now? I have an organisation now called Farmwell and we run a number of projects, one of which is the Farmgate podcast, which sees me uh, hosting interviews, talking to experts, particularly in regenerative agriculture from around the world, you know, from the US to New Zealand and everywhere in between. And uh, before we go any further, regenerative agriculture? So regenerative agriculture um, is is agriculture that harnesses the power of nature. It recruits nature to work on behalf of farmers so they're able to reduce inputs, reduce costs, at the same time as very often increasing productivity and, of course, increasing the amount of profit that they get. So it's a way of balancing uh, the needs of farmers and agriculture and food production with nature, with uh, what we need to do to adapt and mitigate in terms of global warming and to help restore biodiversity, to restore nature. So pretty much what farmers used to do. Yeah, to an extent it's what farmers used to do. But of course in the old days people often did things without having the scientific knowledge necessarily to back it up. They did it by instinct. And so it's about trying to get back to some of those instincts at the same time as applying um, some of the scientific process, some of the knowledge that we've gained and using some of the tools, some of the data collection tools, for example, to be able to better able uh, to be able to better monitor the outcomes uh, that are being realised as a result of the management changes. So really, if if you wanted to sort of put it simply, it's about taking some of the best of indigenous farming but applying it to a sort of modern mainstream setting and improving the outcomes for uh, not only uh, production of uh, beef or lamb or arable uh, potatoes whatever else you're producing but also in terms of nature outcomes sequestering more carbon uh, adapting the land so you're better managing water for example so we avoid flooding and can produce more grass throughout the year but at the same time as improving animal health and welfare and the, and the way that farmers feel about things you know there I have not met a single regenerative farmer uh, who feels that they're on a treadmill every regenerative farmer I've interviewed interviewed and met is excited about going to work, is excited about being on the farm, is excited about the fact that suddenly they feel in control of their system, their system feels resilient. And, and I suppose the, the obvious question is why have you decided to venture into, into this uh, area? Uh, I mean the, an obvious one will be we all need to make money um, but uh, presumably there's more to it than that. Well, for me, it's about trying to make sure that the world that we have and pass on to our children is still one, you know, frankly, one that you can live in, uh, in, in, in a way that's recognisable to us today. And for me, the one fundamental thing, the, the most important thing in terms of dealing with global warming in terms of dealing with the restoration of nature, but also producing good, high-quality, nutritious food that human beings can eat and thrive on, 
is agriculture, is land use. And land use is one of those things that has been, you know, gradually dropping down, down, down the policy agenda since the end of the Second World War. You know, DEFRA, for example, in the UK was one of the most important departments of state back in, uh, in 1950. Now it's one of the smallest departments of state, despite the fact that it you know, still has loads of staff. It's one of the least respected. Uh, and so what I'm trying to do is to sort of show people that land use is key. We can, we can do everything else as a society, but if we don't get land use right, if we don't change and shorten and seasonalise food systems, then we're in a very difficult place going forwards. And actually, what you say in there about DEFRA, I think, would equally apply to DEFRA when it comes to agriculture and, and, and food, which are both in the title, uh, and yet uh, a, a relatively small portion now of the uh, proportion of the staff are actually uh, working on food and agriculture. Um, and what, why do you think that is? You know, is, is this symptomatic of a uh, of a disconnect between the the general populace and food production, or is there some other reason for that? Well, do you know what you tell me, Phil? Because you know you were the agriculture minister, and you were under enormous pressure at various different times to leave the Department of Agriculture. Uh, it, you know, to to help your career, you were told that you needed to go to bigger departments if you wanted to be become more important within the government because. Ag- Agriculture. Even here on the Isle of Man, we've seen, you know, the Department of Agriculture and Fisheries increasingly lowered in terms of its importance within government because we've become complacent about food. It's cheap. It's plentiful. It's available whenever we want it. We can have an avocado at any different time of the year. And, and that's going to change. It's going to change in the future. So it's not so much that uh, the human behavior needs to change and choose to change. I think that nature and economic forces will, will, will push that change, will force that change upon us. Um, and, and in the same way that you know, we, we're expecting to be able to have this food whenever we want it, our farming has adjusted to support that need where we have uh, farming has become about chemistry rather than about biology. We've been using artificial chemical inputs which have stripped away the nutrients in the soil, stripped away its ability to manage water, to cycle sunlight and to photosynthesize. Uh, and, and now we need to relearn some of those skills. And, and of course, one of the key reasons, certainly at the moment, any farmer on the Isle of Man listening to this programme will tell you is uh, the the, the cost of fertilizer and indeed i was speaking to one farmer recently who suggested that actually it's not not even about cost anymore it's about whether there is going to be any fertilizer to buy I mean, one of the things that I think is really heartening is that, you know, if you go back to the 70s and the 80s, when people were first starting to talk about organic agriculture, it was seen as a niche thing. It was seen as something a bit hippie, whereas I think that regenerative agriculture has already moved past that. Uh, You know, you open Farmers Weekly or the Farmers Guardian, and there will be an article about regenerative agriculture in there every week and probably more than one. Uh, Okay, it's going to be, you know, perhaps on the facing page, there'll be an advert for some, you know, chemical fertilizer and so on so we've still got still to join these things up but at the same time regen is becoming mainstream and uh, and and i think that's that's crucial in terms of getting messages out to farmers and one of the key messages i think that 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 farmers 
need to hear and they need to hear repeatedly in relation to what you were just talking about and the impact of the Ukraine conflict on the cost of fertilizers, etc., is that this is a way of reducing reliance on inputs. So the farmers that are winning regenerative awards have perhaps saved themselves 70, 80, 100,000 pounds in the course of the year and they haven't reduced their production. They've actually increased their production as a result because they've changed the way that they're managing things. Now, one of the uh, projects that we run within Farmwell is the Food and Global Security Network. And, you know, at the, at the, the heart of that is soil. It's how we manage soil. And if we're thinking about security, then, yeah, you know, people can talk about battle strategy or they can talk about tanks and guns. But, but frankly, you can win a war with those things, but you can't maintain a peace if you can't produce food, if you don't have the soil there to produce the food. Because And, and, and I suppose that you, in terms of soil maintenance, I mean, people will think, well, the soil is the soil, isn't it? Uh, most people listening to this programme, um, p- perhaps a few gardeners and farmers might have a, a better understanding about, f- about soil, but wh- why is soil maintenance so important? Well, soil has been so badly degraded because farming has become a process of chemistry rather than a process of biology. And I think that's the key thing that we need to turn around. Uh, And so regenerative agriculture is about, uh, it's not about rules, it's about principles. And uh, sort of four of the key cycles that you might think of within Regen are trying to cycle sunlight, make sure that you're getting as good a photosynthesis as you possibly can. Cycle water so that your land is absorbing water, stopping it running off and flooding further downstream at the same time as then holding and releasing water so that you're able to grow grass or whatever other crop it is that you're growing throughout the year rather than in just you know spring through autumn that it's it's there the whole time even even during a drought but also allowing complexity so you get the nutrients cycling in the ground you're using livestock to help with that you're allowing a lot of rest so you're having heavy impact from livestock perhaps um, at the same time as then moving them on you know much more rapidly than you would have done in a in a different rotation and a different sort of crop cycle um, and then allowing that land to rest and the other thing is allowing complexity so that rather than trying to reduce the number of weeds or crops or whatever you're increasing the species you're allowing the grass to grow taller so that although you can't increase the amount of land you have you can increase the vertical real estate if you like the vertical uh, amount uh, of grass of product that's being produced and of course if you've got grass that's growing to three four even five feet we're finding at times in places like Oxfordshire with colleagues that I work with then that's a lot more energy that's going into your cows and sheep. And, and of course uh, for, again, for, for the listener who, who's not that familiar with uh, grassland management, um, the, the part of the, uh, the, the change that's maybe happened over the past three or four generations of farming is that um, the, the grass or the grasses that are grown are, are specifically designed to absorb the fertilizers that are produced and are specifically grown to respond to the herbicides that are used to kill off uh, the weeds like uh, thistles and, and ducks and things like this. Yeah, absolutely. And so, um, you know, there's a, there's a farmer that I've 
spoken to uh, called George Young, who people may well be aware of uh, through Twitter and things like that. He tweets a lot. He's over in East Anglia. He's an arable farmer. And, you know, he, when he came back, he went off. He was a farming family, went off to the city of London. He was a banker, then gave up on that, got disenchanted, came back to the farm, took over from his father, who was you know standard mainstream arable farmer. And he's integrated all kinds of sort of heritage wheats within what he's doing so that there is a diversity uh, a resilience that comes about from diversity and at the same time as having that diversity it means that more nutrients are going into the soil the soil itself is becoming more productive it's cycling those things that I was talking about earlier and he's getting you know a more resilient crop that doesn't need to have the chemical pesticides put on it because it's managing itself it's a healthier crop in the first place and so he's able to you know get really good yields while spending less on it and I think that's you know it's one of those messages that we keep Need, need to keep coming back to that this is about spending less recruiting nature to work on your behalf and therefore even if your production drops a little which if you're already organic it won't it'll it'll increase quite substantially um, but even if your production reduces a little your profit will go up and ultimately farmers need to stop thinking about the volume that they're producing and start thinking about themselves as businessmen and the amount of profit that they're making and let me give you an example of that one of the projects we have is uh, the regen dairy project where we're working with fai farms across in oxfordshire where we're working around the world with farmers in the US, uh, in New Zealand, in Europe and in the UK um, with big companies like Barry Calibo, the world's biggest chocolate producer, uh, Unilever, Ben and Jerry's, Woolworths South Africa and Arla to try and define what regenerative dairy looks like because of course dairy cows require an awful lot of energy to produce the milk uh, that they're producing. And, and we have this, this wonderful couple in Oxfordshire, Sophie and Di Wilson, who will be in a podcast that comes out in a, in a, in a couple of weeks' time. And they, are, they, they outwinter their dairy cattle, which is you know, almost unheard of. They did it initially because they didn't have sheds when they moved on to that land. But they carried on doing it because when they've worked on the genetics, actually those cattle are much more healthy. They're much more resilient. They, they don't fall ill as frequently. And so although they're producing a lot fewer litres a year for them. They're still producing into, you know, a standard organic um, dairy cooperative um, in, into Arla, I, I believe. Um, but they reckon that they're within the top quarter of earners in Britain because their inputs are so low, both in terms of medications, in terms of fertilisers, etc. And, you know, having, not having buildings to, uh, to build and maintain and heat. Um, and so their profits are just really high, despite the fact that their yield is lower than many people's would be. Firstly, it's important to say production may reduce. It kind of it depends how how your land is in the first place. Actually, it may well increase. And certainly uh, the farm that we've been working with in Oxford, they're going to be increasing the number of cattle and sheep that they have on the farm because they're producing so much more grass and, and managing it you know, so much more uh, effectively. But at the same time, it's not a, an individual farmer or an individual farming family's job to feed the world. It's their job to feed into their supply chain, 
It's their job to feed their own family, which is what everybody needs to do, earning money um, and feeding their own family, and to feed their neighbours. Now, if we all fed our neighbours, particularly through shortened supply chains, uh, if we fed our own communities, there would be way more than enough food to go around. Now, it's a common statistic that around a third of the, the food that's produced around the world, particularly in richer nations, is wasted. But actually, if you include obesity, uh, sort of the eating of unnecessary calories in to that statistic, then it rises to something like half of the food that we produce is wasted. It's not a question of needing to produce more and more and more. It's a question of trying to be better as consumers about the way that we manage food waste and increasing our own um, diversity in terms of our own diets. And, and again, that's something that will just happen naturally as uh, as the type of crops that can be produced as we face global warming and biodiversity loss and try and adapt to these things, you know, that those sorts of things will just happen. Of course, cows and sheep uh, emit um, gases, not just the ones that they breathe in and out. Um, and uh, many people, uh, certainly uh, climate scientists, are often quoted as saying this is part of the problem in relation to uh, greenhouse gases and climate change so by i mean if the system that you're talking about actually results in more uh, livestock production that's more uh, harmful gases being produced you've got to start from the land if you're uh, if you're living in a bit of the countryside that is particularly brilliant for growing beans and growing spuds, then grow spuds and grow beans. Actually, you could do with creating a proper rotation. This is going back to the way we used to do things, and livestock are going to be part of that. But if you're in a place that grows grass, then it's about livestock. It's livestock turning grass into something that humans can eat, and that's really important. Now, this idea that uh, that cattle and sheep are somehow the problem, or deer for that matter, is the kind of story that's perpetuated by people like George Monbiot uh, frequently, and and it is complete nonsense. Uh, and there's a, a phrase that we use within regenerative agriculture circles, which is, it's about the how, not the cow. So you can farm a cow in a US feedlot where uh, you don't see a blade of grass, you don't see a tree, where every bit of feed has to be imported, where the water is brought in, where they're reliant on hormones and all kinds of other things. Yeah. Yeah, that's the problem. But it's not the cow that's the problem. It's the system that they're uh, being reared in. You put a cow into a regenerative system, then they're eating, uh, you know, food that is being produced. If they're being managed through uh, a system like adaptive multi-paddock grazing or mob grazing, where they're uh, they're on a, a relatively small piece of land for just a few days and then moved on, and that land can rest for four or five months, and you see enormous growth there, then that heavy impact treading in uh, the manure and that sort of thing will mean that that land is suddenly working in a way that it hasn't done. You'll see flowers coming up where the seeds have been laying dormant for 70 years because suddenly they're able to grow and flourish in that system. Now, you mentioned climate scientists and what they say. Well, I work with a lot of climate scientists and Professor um, Miles Allen is one of the most senior IPCC scientists. He has, uh, you know, he wrote, he was one of the lead authors in the 1.5 report and he was behind the work looking at methane uh, and creating uh, an, an updated metric called GWP star. Now, the standard metric for measuring uh, the impact of methane and other greenhouse gases is GWP 100. And talk about climate scientists, the IPCC itself said this time last year when they brought out their, their most recent synthesis report that GWP 100 
overstates the impact of stable methane emissions by a factor of three to four, while understating the impact of new methane emissions by a factor of four to five. So whichever way you look at it, it's wrong. It's incorrect. What GWP star does is accurately characterize the behavior of methane. So if we're talking about nitrous oxide or carbon dioxide, which are the other two key greenhouse gases associated with agriculture, they exist and they're active in the atmosphere for between 500 and 1,000 years. You know, you, you emit either of those gases, they're going to contribute to global warming from here until eternity, so far as, you know, human beings, and, you know, the next few generations are concerned. Methane breaks down in 20 years. Its active half-life is 10 years. So if you've got a herd of cattle that have existed for a generation on a farm, yes, there was a pulse of global warming from the methane when that cattle herd was first established, and it will be maintained, that temperature rise will be maintained, but there's no additional warming. So now in the UK, across the whole of the UK, British Isles, we have um, a similar number of sheep to what we had in 1750. There's a similar number of sheep there. There has literally been no impact on global warming from the British Isles sheep flock because that number hasn't changed. There was a bit of a pulse at the beginning, but it's then just been maintained throughout and cycled. And so we need to get away from this idea that somehow cattle and sheep are part of the problem because when we realise that actually the methane and the way that cycles is not the big issue, it's the CO2 from the chemical inputs, from the concrete infrastructure. It's the, it's the nitrous oxide from slurry tanks and from uh, you know, spreading of uh, manure on fields, those sorts of things. That's what we have to reduce. And at the same time as reducing that, we can manage those livestock in a rotation in a way that means that we're better able to manage water, we can prevent flooding, that we can make sure there's ground cover so we can actively reduce global temperatures by making sure that the ground is maintained uh, at a decent temperature um, at the same time is improving animal health and welfare, improving the economic outcomes for farmers, improving the community and society outcomes as well. If anyone from the Isle of Man government happens to be listening and happens to be interested in this, uh, I mean, how could this uh, be introduced in the Isle of Man? Uh, What changes would we see if the whole of the Isle of Man became um, regenerative agriculture based? Well, the Isle of Man's a biosphere, isn't it? Which is, you know, should be one of the big policy drivers, quite apart from the fact that, that everybody should want a viable, um, economically sound, uh, as well as, you know, climate and biodiversity sound agricultural system. And, and I think, you know, government can incentivize these things in terms of the way that it pays farmers. So I, I suspect that, you know, having come away from the common agricultural policy, you know, farmers will be familiar with uh, the environmental landscape management scheme which you know a lot of us are you know having spent a lot of time working with government to try and influence what they're doing a lot of us are quite skeptical about but i think that wales is starting to do some really interesting stuff where although there won't be an acreage payment in due course. There will be something which is relatively similar to an acreage payment, um, a whole farm payment, which requires a change in management, requiring that farmers in due course will need to do carbon footprints on their farms using GWP star. They'll need to focus on outcomes around water, around biodiversity, start measuring these things rather than simply using that land to produce food. So if you focus on these outcomes, then farmers are better able to produce food at the same time as delivering for nature you just you shift where where the policy emphasis is but really it's about the farm businesses themselves wanting to take back control and and 
every farmer who ever thinks about going regenerative will be suspicious that even though it's working brilliantly over there, it's not going to work on their farm. Every single farmer that's ever gone regen has said, oh, it won't work on my farm. The reality is it will work on every farm, but you do need to understand how regenerative agriculture works. And, and the FarmGate podcast is a great place to go to get a, a basic understanding of that where experts are talking. But frankly, there's loads of stuff on YouTube where farmers, if they're interested in this, can look at it. And for groups like Isle of Man Creameries, you know, there are 30 now, it's an ever dwindling number of dairy farms. They could take a decision to go regenerative. And I know that they're branding around grass fed, um, but it's only 70% grass fed at the moment. It's still reliant on, you know, these inputs and those inputs. Recruit nature, get nature to work reduce the inputs. You've got a really high quality nutritious pro um, product. Um, I don't see any reason why the prices, which are already high, as we know on the Isle of Man in comparison with other places in the UK, would need to increase because there'll be more profit in that already. And the changes that we'd see in the countryside would be you know, a more active, thriving network of, of wildflowers and insects and hedges, you know, a, a more exciting sward, all this sort of stuff, at the same time as getting a brilliant quality product out of there. And in terms of beef farming uh, and sheep farming, it is reasonably straightforward to go regen. It's just a case of you know, watching some of the tutorials and listening to some of the podcasts that are now you know, out there and available and and from the isle of man government's perspective uh, this of course you know if you look at the core sort of policy objectives for the isle of man government having a sustainable robust reliable agriculture food production sector is 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 right up there and at the moment uh, most farmers in the isle of man are wholly dependent on inputs uh, from across the water Look, we all know what happens when the boat can't get in for three or four days. You know, at the moment, that's because we're getting, you know, some slightly stormy seas. Um, in the future, we're likely to see significantly more stormy seas. We're going to see those periods when the Ben McCree can't sail extending. And I think, you know, the government just needs to be really careful. If you're thinking about food security, then on an island, food security becomes even more important. Being able to supply the basic staples and being able to promote why you're doing that uh, to the population that exists here. I mean, you, you know, you mentioned at the very beginning the idea of the I Love Manx campaign, you know, and that was a campaign that we were running then to try and get people to understand not just that local food was good and it was worth paying for and it was worth eating, but the impact that that had on the economy, the economy of the Isle of Man and on the nature of the Isle of Man. And I think that in the future we need to see that just as a precursor to a really big project that society as a whole needs to understand that we need more uh, more diversity in the food that's being produced on the Isle of Man uh, so that's you know that's the important thing as well it's not just a case of producing beef and sheep and you know uh, and just eating that when the boat can't sail we need a greater diversity here at the same time we need to shorten those uh, those supply chains make sure that farmers are earning a profit because if they're not earning a profit they can't farm you know frankly at all um, and uh, and make sure that when the boat can't get in, when there is a drought, like we've just been experiencing, when there is flooding, etc., when there is wildfire <laughs> that takes out you know, half the crop of this place or that place, or there's a war in another place around the world that means that there's a huge interruption in global food supply, 
that we're okay on the Isle of Man because we've thought about it and we've got a 10-year plan and a 20-year plan to make sure there's resilience in our food production systems. That was Finlow Castain from Farmwell. Could his bold vision work for Manx farms? David Bellamy works for the Manx Wildlife Trust and is providing advice to farmers on the new agri-environment scheme. So what's the scheme deliver? Well, the, the most obvious ones that people always pick up on are, are things like uh, putting over space to nature, so planting new trees, creating new wetlands. Uh, but really, on a small island with lots of small farms, that, that's a really niche area. So something I'm particularly keen to look at is existing farming practices that are already beneficial to wildlife. So, for example, leaving stubbles uh, for farmland birds uh, over, over winter uh, and looking to maybe um, tweak existing practices, uh, like leaving your hay meadows um, in fields ever so slightly longer so that it benefits wildflowers and ground nesting birds and here on the Isle of Man we've got a really unique form of agriculture that, that is really beneficial to many species of wildlife so we're also looking to, to reward existing habitats that are really special too. Well, I'm imagining part of this scheme is, is recognising some of the great work that farmers already do. Definitely. So here on our uh, UNESCO biosphere, 88% of the island is countryside and 72% of the island is, is physically um, is farmed. Uh, so if we don't have farmers on, on board, then we're never going to achieve what we want uh, for the island. So the Manx Wildlife Trust, we're 50 years old next year. And in that time, we, we've acquired 26 nature reserves, but they only cover 0.2% of the Isle of Man. So if we don't bring farmers on, on board, who, as you say, are the custodians of the wider landscape, then we'll never look to to restore and uh, and uh, let nature flourish on the Isle of Man. So what, what are the, the standout moments for you, the treasures that you've actually found? Well, I thought I knew the Isle of Man really well beforehand, but after being on around about 250 farm visits now, which cover a third of the, the Isle of Man, 47,000 acres, I think it is, I've seen there are some real hidden gems on, on farmland. Uh, for example, just, just last week, a, a plant was rediscovered on a farm that was thought lost, extinct on the Isle of Man. It hadn't been seen for 20 years. Uh, and a couple of weeks prior to that, we saw a, a wildflower on, on a dairy farm in the south of the Isle of Man that hadn't been seen for 142 years on the Isle of Man. So there's a huge amount of excite, exciting things to discover on Manx farmland. At a time, though, when we're facing quite a, a significant problem in relation to the supply of food, how would you respond to people who might say, well, why are we spending money to protect or, or to provide habitats for, for, for wildlife when we actually need food? So I really do feel for farmers because we're asking them to do a lot. We're asking them to feed the nation. We're asking them to uh, make it look beautiful and green and, and presentable. We're asking them to clean our, our rivers and on our seas and look after our wildlife and, and uh, to reduce carbon emissions. So it's a, it's a huge task. But because they do control and manage and look after 72% of the island, it, it is a necessary ask. Uh, so that's part of my job is, is to, to help them on, on that journey. And, and it doesn't need to be, um, uh, how do you put it, a, a competition between wildlife and food production, does it? No, completely not. The, the two go hand in hand. Nothing on the Isle of Man is is really wild. As in none of our landscapes um, uh, resemble in any way that the Isle of Man before uh, humans um, completely changed it. Uh, so the wildlife that we have had over the, the last centuries is completely dependent on, on, on Manx farmland essentially. Uh, so, so our really cherished wildlife like lapwings and, and curlew and all sorts of rare wildflowers are, are dependent on, on Manx farming. Uh, and what we just need to do is just make sure that farmers are, are aware of what's special out there and that they're, they're given the knowledge and the tools to look after it. 
Uh, we heard earlier in the in the programme from Finlow Castain talking about regenerative agriculture. Um, is, is there much uh, scope for that on the island, do you think? Completely, because regenerative agriculture is all about understanding your soil uh, and ensuring its, its health. Uh, and if you know your soil, your farming is all, all about that. Uh, and that starts simply with things like having soil samples done uh, regularly, making sure the pH and the nutrient loading is, is correct. Uh, and over, re- kind of really since World War II, um, that has largely been done on, a, on an artificial chemical basis. Uh, the, the cost of those has skyrocketed in, in, in recent times for, for obvious reasons. So what we're doing is exploring other ways that farmers can achieve their soil health that actually have real beneficial wildlife uh, benefits too. So we're looking at things like herbal lays, legume-rich swords, uh, and it really does prove that, that nature and farming can go hand in hand. And, and for people who, who don't have an agricultural background, of course, the, the, if you spread nitrogen fertilisers and you use the various herbicides that are used to control uh, weeds, a lot of the, the sort of things like legumes and, and, and uh, herbs are killed off by that process, aren't they? Yeah, I, I think there always will be a need uh, for... Um, what, what some people might say the, the more intensive side of agriculture because of course we do need to, to feed the nation but, but where it's appropriate we, we absolutely must look at these different different options um, available uh, and I think moving uh, away um, from agrochemicals obviously th- there's clear environmental benefits uh, there but I, I think many farmers are keen to explore that because of the cost implications too. The farming system we've managed with so well for, for centuries um, effectively relied on what we could find on the island by way of inputs, you know, fertilizers and things would be racked from the, the beach. Uh, the, the euphemistically titled night soil that used to come out of the, uh, the toilets and things like this. Yeah, so interestingly, um, in many ways, uh, we're looking back on the, the former ways of farming on the Isle of Man to see what we can learn from that. So this year, lots of people have been using seaweed additives uh, on, on their farms to re- replace artificial um, ke- chemicals. Uh, slurry, farmyard, manure, these natural products that are being created on the farm are a really important um, area. So, so people are looking really cleverly at those now so having it sampled seeing what it's deficient in and and looking at really effective ways that it can be uh, spread uh, and and used on farm so there's an awful lot we can learn from our forebears but of course the the population on the Isle of Man's risen um, uh, as has uh, our our, our, you know um, food consumption uh, per capita so we do need to to make sure that we can um, learn from the past but make sure that we're producing the, the food levels that we need for today. Your role in relation to the Farming and uh, Wildlife Advisory Group, uh, particularly in relation to this competition, uh, uh, what, what, what exactly have you been uh, engaged with there? So uh, because I've been around so many farms on the Isle of Man in the last year, um, it, it wouldn't have been appropriate for me to be one of the, the Chuff Award judges. But what I have done, because I, uh, I, I know the Isle of Man's farmland wildlife quite well, is I've, I've been escorting the judges round and educating them where required on, on the habitats and species that are really special and some of the things that farmers have been doing to, to look after and, and enhance those areas and species. Darren Moore is from Jackson's who are sponsoring this year's Chuff Awards. He explains how Jackson's have got involved. We had the opportunity recently to engage with the, the farming and wildlife advisory group uh, f- uh, having met up at the Royal Manx uh, Agricultural Show recently to then further cement a relationship and a partnership to start with sponsoring 
the uh, the awards that will be um, announced, I guess, in, in, in due course, which we've been judging over the last couple of days. And then, you know, hoping to build support uh, and further engage with the community, in particular the farming community, uh, over the longer term, uh, as our principles are broadly aligned in terms of our, you know, uh, environmental, social, corporate governance and and uh, missions moving forward to make the planet, but the island in particular, a better place. Presumably, uh, visiting farms, um, as, as many farms as you will have done for this uh, Chuff Award, is not something that you've, you've done before. No, no, not, uh, not for many, many years. So, uh, again, it's been a, a, a real eye-opener uh, to really get a first-hand understanding as to you know the histories behind uh, some of these fantastic farms and families that are behind them and indeed where they are now and, and what they're embarking upon uh, to uh, sustain themselves and the island for the future and it's just been amazing some inspirational people uh, and from small farms which I've learned that got sort of 100 200 acres I think we're actually judging some farms with even less that I'm not personally involved in but up to 4,000 acres so such a broad range uh, and totally fascinating incredible what's happening and and what would you say is the thing that surprised you the most about about these farm visits and uh, what what, what lessons would you say you've learned from the whole thing I think to be honest aside from what I've learned about farming is the absolute passion and enthusiasm and drive and determination that the farming community have in different ways, given the different types of uh, farming, um, to build uh, a stronger, more sustainable future for, for everybody. It's just been incredible. And, and in terms of what you've actually seen as a judge, you know, the specific things, uh, uh, are there any particular things that you're able to tell us about that uh, you've, you've seen that you thought, oh God, you know, this, this, this is a particularly worthy example or, or uh, anything that has uh, stood out as, as a particularly good feature that uh, a farmer has introduced? Yeah, I think a uh, number of things, but in particular uh, just uh, two things. One is, you know, the areas, zones, parts of the farms which are being um, identified as conservation areas and indeed what, what's happening there to, to, to further enhance those areas with, with support uh, as, as, as we touched upon locally uh, but also you know, from, from, their own, uh, pers- from their own perspective you know, that's just the way they think so there's a lot going on there and, and, and what I've also been surprised to, to learn more about is just to what extent wildlife both in terms of creatures dare I say but also plant life and flowers and just how much there is to fight for and uh, uh, for our futures but then secondly from a farming perspective some of the ways in which the teams and the families are adapting to embrace new technology uh, and think differently about how they can drive their own productivity and commerciality so that both things sort of work hand in glove as, as they build that better future. And, and people often say about agriculture, particularly those who don't know that much about it, it, it should be run as a commercial business and if it fails, it fails. But of course the difference is uh, we actually need something to eat, don't we? Yeah, for sure. And, um, and again, what I've seen, uh, you know, strong evidence of there is, is, you know, fantastic sort of strategic thinking in terms of how they can adapt and change 
to, to be more productive and find new ways to do things based on some, as I've understood it, uh, some traditional farming principles. You know, because fundamentally, you know, yeah, we, 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 we all need to eat. Um, so I guess it's just that balance. But, you know, the people that we've met certainly seem very focused and have strong plans to, to achieve that balance. Any plans for the garden now that you've seen all this uh, the sort of uh, the, the wilding process that's gone on and on different farmer support for, for biodiversity? Any, uh, I don't know, uh, bug boxes going in or uh, bat, bat boxes or whatever? I, I think there'll be, there'll be quite a few. Uh, we've got a little bit of scope. Uh, I still need to learn some more to build my own confidence because I have a partner who's very passionate about things local and, and re- a relatively small garden. But... Um, no, I'm sure there'll be a, a few things that we'll be adding uh, that will hopefully add value as well to, to us and everybody else and the environment around us. And perhaps even uh, with, with Jackson's. There's lots we can do there. We're on a, a, a large piece of land ourselves and there's some quick wins there that I've been able to learn over the last few days that I'm sure we can implement to be more efficient in many ways and again add further value to everything that's going on around the island, you know. And, and often uh, the, the sorts of things that you can do to support biodiversity uh, involve um, bits of land that generally don't have an awful lot of, of, of use other than someone has to go along with the strimmer every now and again and, and, and tidy it up. Yeah, for, for sure. I mean, there's, there's, there's just so much we can do. Uh, and I think that for us as well, it's a, it's a big educational piece uh, for, for colleagues and friends and family associated with, our, associated with our business. I think we employ about 85 people. So there, there's an awful lot there we can do as we continue to connect and partner with Uh, the Farming and uh, Wildlife Advisory Group. In recent years, Hilary and Paul Fletcher have been the driving force behind the Chuff Award presented to farmers who have made a big contribution to nurturing Manx biodiversity. Paul told me about the award. It goes back many moons long before Hilary and I were involved with with FWAG, uh, that originally the Farming Wildlife Group was set up uh, with farmers that were really focused on supporting wildlife initiatives but equally with members, I think there were 21 other NGOs, non-government organisations that all had a, had a, uh, a focus on, on, on nature, the environment and so on. And the flag was a meeting of minds, like-minded people, and it was dis- determined within FWAG and, you know, back probably 20-odd years ago, maybe longer, that they wanted to have a farm com- competition to celebrate this. And one of the... Uh, members of FWAG at that point worked for Alman Bank and the, they kindly sponsored the competition. Uh, young lady, uh, Steph Quayle, I think she goes as Quayle Jackson now, uh, she was at college at the time and she was invited to actually cast a chuff. I think at the time Defa, I don't know whether you were minister at the time even, but Defa footed the bill uh, to have to then cast out of bronze the, this uh, replica that, that Steph had sculpted of, of a chuff and that's where, that's where the chuff goes goes back to uh, and it's been awarded for many years we've unfortunately through my wife's ill health and then through through Covid we've had a few years the competition's not run but we're, we're very grateful for Jackson stepping in as sponsors now to coming alongside the farming industry and the group uh, and we're very much up and running and, and the industry's really received it well this year Hillary, then, I mean, you're uh, the, the driving force behind the operation in, in as much as you're the one that sends out the emails. That's me. I'm the one that hassles people for the entries and whatever. Um, we were very lucky this year, though. We, we've had contacted 
um, FMA, the MMA, Manx Wildlife Trust, the Flock Masters Association, etc. And most of them have put forward nominations. We ended up um, with 24 nominations, of which when we then, we then contacted people who hadn't entered their own farm, um, and we ended up with a 16 farms, I think, that had to be judged. So it was a bit of a logistical nightmare because um, we'd already arranged the judging dates for the final judging and there was just too many to fit into the timescale we had. So um, last week, beginning of last week, uh, Paul managed to find a second panel of judges who went out and looked at the the ten big farms and they looked at those and they narrowed it down from ten to, to five. One of the five didn't really have time this week to fit in with the judging so the last two days there's been four, four, four farms judged and the reason why we had such a a, a tight window is we were very very fortunate to get His Excellency um, Sir John Lorimer and Lady Lorimer out with the judging panel so we were quite privileged about that. And, and they know a bit about farming don't they? Lady Lorimer you understand grew up on a farm in Somerset, Wibbeliscombe in Somerset so she yes she was she was very farm. passionate about farming she understands farming. And, and in terms of the the actual award then uh, what what specifically well, well I suppose what's the motivation behind the word well the strap line is commercial farming but in encouraging and supporting wildlife so when the the judging criteria we have this year is actually based on the UK silver lapwing award so it looks at commercial sustain sustainability um, things like waste management, um, use of resources. So it's not just about the wildlife. It actually covers a huge range of, of things. You know, we've got sort of um, how people manage their soil, their water, um, if they have any energy capture, um, ways of community engagement, you know, whether people use Facebook or any other or farm visits or anything like that all those things are part of engaging with the community and and I think this year we've been very very fortunate because with the new agri-environment scheme coming on online it's really important that people see what farmers are doing you know it's sort of because this public money is out there, it's important that farmers see and it, and that community engagement of what people are actually doing is really important. In terms of uh, the actual award, then uh, when when is the actual award then going to be uh, presented? The ceremony for the award will be on the fourteenth of October, and that's courtesy of Jacksons. Excellent. Um, and, and in terms of uh, the, 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 the judging, I mean, it, it must be difficult because, I mean, you, 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 you want to get people who know something about agriculture uh, on your judging panels, but you also want uh, people like uh, uh, Darren Moore from, from Jackson's who actually, 
you know, lacking in, in, in much by, by way of knowledge about uh, agriculture. And, and that's important because part of the award is to help people who don't have much understanding about agriculture understand the, the, the sorts of things that, that uh, the, the winners are, and, and the competitors are actually doing. It is. I mean, that, that that's. I mean, the the range of judges we had has been incredible. You know, we've had Trish Sale from the Wildlife Trust, Liz Charter, who used to be the biodiversity officer at at DEFA, and then we've had farmers. The pr- previous winner we had both Steve and Chris Martin out. They were previous winners, so they've they've looked at it from the nature side and from the farm side. But of course, Darren, Darren, I think has, it's been a bit of an eye opener to Darren to find out what actually goes on be- behind the hedge, so to speak. Uh, and, and final word then from you, uh, Paul, um, the success of this this year's competition for you. It's it's been absolutely great. I mean, one of the one of the things is that the competition is celebrating the good practice that's been going on for, for generations, Phil. It's it's nothing new. And all we're doing is it's actually Manx, Manx farmers, uh, same as many Manx folk, are slow at coming forwards. They don't like to shout about what they do. Uh, then They're not boastful, but it's what they do, it's the way they farm, the way they, they, they care for the land, for the hedgerows, for the habitat. And so there's so much out there. And, I mean, the ju- judging... Uh, over, over the weekend, Friday, Saturday, uh, we actually, Liz Charter was with us. She actually re-identified uh, some plants, uh, some little tiny, I think uh, a variety of uh, strain of buttercup uh, associated with wetland. And she actually, the, these were thought to be extinct. They're on the, on the danger list for plant species. They're thought to be extinct, and she actually identified at least half a dozen plants of this thing. So, you know, it just shows, it's just an ex- one example, it just shows what is actually out there on our farms uh, that, that farmers are caring for and cherishing, uh, and, 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 and that their presence within the, the farm system that we have. The island is absolutely, it's, it's, I think Andy Cooper used to be at the union, worked out that we've got the, the greatest uh, number of kilometres of hedgerow per square mile of, of land area anywhere in the world. And, and, and that provides an absolute fantastic haven for for birds, for mammals, uh, for small invertebrates, and, and so on. And there's so much more that will be will be shared when we when we come to the awards ceremony about other things that's been other things that have been rediscovered. So watch this space. It really does give you great cause for optimism hearing about the wonderful work our farmers are doing to support Manx biodiversity and, excuse the pun, plenty of food for thought from Finlow Castain regarding regenerative agriculture. Of course, there's always another side to any discussion and certainly redesigning the whole way in which we buy and consume food is a big ask. But relying on chemicals and food produced thousands of miles from our shores does seem to be taking a big risk with our essential food supplies. Please get in touch with philgorn at manxradio.com and let me know your thoughts and views on the programme. And don't forget the podcast is available from Manx Radio's website. But for now... I'm Phil Gorn, Guramayo Sun Geisha from Thanks for Listening.